0: Stand by. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast. I am James and with me as always is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight we're talking about terrific turbines, wonderful worms, and ancient asteroids. In the second half, we have my conversation with Cameron Martin of the nature is gay podcast but first the news dear listeners i have a lot of controversial opinions i think baseball games are better on radio i think syncopation is the best baby metal song and the brendan fraser mummy movies are criminally underrated One thing I think we can all agree on is that as a species, we need to figure out a way to generate electricity without all these dang fossil fuels. There are lots of ways to achieve this, and as Steffi will tell you, we shouldn't rule any of them out, especially fusion. However, efforts to harvest the energy potential of ocean currents have largely been absent from this conversation, but that could be about to change. A team from IHI Industries, whose corporate slogan is High IHI, has just completed a a three-and-a-half-year field test of their 300-ton prototype ocean turbine off the coast of southwestern Japan. There's still a long way to go with this, but the early results are promising in what could be an important addition to future energy production efforts. So what do we think about these terrific turbines just spinning around down on the ocean floor? I also love that they called this turbine the Kaiyu, which is kind of close to Kaiju. Um, I know they weren't going for that. They were just calling it ocean currents in Japan. But the popular reporting has picked up on that that similarity in sound. It's pretty cool. What is kaiju actually? I don't even know what that is. Yeah, w- You don't know what kaiju? No. is? was oh, like a It's like a Godzilla. Oh.
1: oh.
0: It's a It's a monster. That makes sense. Gotcha. It's a It's a big monster comes from the sea?
1: I mean, this is basically what they sounds like they're trying to do. Suspend this this big monster of a turbine mm-hmm. in the ocean to harness the energy of the currents.
0: And one of the things I was kind of struck by is the like the 330-ton turbine they just used was like
2: the baby version, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah uh, this just... was this was the field test. <laughs> right, it's like, oh, if this works, we're going to make it bigger because the amount of energy that it generates is woefully inadequate at this point, right? Yes. But I think that could change.
1: Yeah, so right now, the prototype that they have, it's only churning out 100 kilowatts of power. It's roughly equivalent to 100 household microwaves. That's kind of how I use my energy equivalent in microwave (laughs) ovens. Yeah. So they're looking at scaling up this demo with maybe 20 meter long turbines to generate two megawatts. But this is just proof of principle right now.
0: Japan has a lot of coastline, which this article points out. I didn't know if you knew, but uh, according to this article, Japan has a lot of coastline. And it has challenging terrain that makes other renewables pretty hard to do. So they can just kind of like fill the ocean currents with these turbines. And they estimate that if all of this works well, if all of this works, they could generate up to the amount that they are currently generating with the combination of nuclear... Nuclear power plants and fossil fuels.
2: I love how this article talks about how the Japanese public has kind of soured on nuclear power. I wonder why. Right. After meltdowns, right? I mean, I get it. I understand. Um, I think what's exciting, though, is that they're going to potentially unleash a tidal wave of tidal power if this comes to fruition. And that's pretty cool. I just cannot put my mind around why we haven't explored this much. I mean we've already talked about water powered energy for a long time, right? I mean mills exist and they have for a very long time. You know, hydroelectric dams are part of our energy infrastructure in this country, so why haven't we spent the time trying to figure this problem out the way that we have other problems.
1: If we're taking a US perspective, right? We have a lot of cheap energy that relatively cheap if you're burning things that's readily available. So you go to that first. If you want to develop a new form of energy, um, something that's cleaner and better for the environment, it takes investment. That has historically, at least at the foundation level, has been by the government. And there's so many other investments that they're doing in science, and it takes a long time if you're just relying on the government. But we have so much land in the U.S. that you can use for solar energy and wind. That's why we haven't invested. That's why I like how Japan's looking at, hey, we can't just use what everyone else is using. Mm -hmm. What do we have that's unique to our country and available um, that we can really tap into? and so i think this is very interesting approach the one thing that i was a little bit concerned about and maybe just because i read this article and i didn't go into it deeper is there's no no talk about the ethical or the the implications on how it may impact ocean life
0: i can't imagine it would be a positive addition to the ecosystem if we have 20 meter turbines churning up water and kind of messing with the whatever sensory things that the fish are using that whales and dolphins like i see a lot of downside to that part of it
1: well i, th- I think any energy source that you're going to use it's going to there's going to be risks. It's going Mm -hmm. to cause harm. Right. And so it's characterizing that and understanding the impact and trying to minimize as much as you can. So I think because this is at the developmental stage, maybe they'll look into that further. I guess we were talking a little bit about why this hasn't been done before. Part of it is also materials, advanced materials that you can have to stand, withstand these ocean environments. Um, and, Better understanding of a marine environment will actually aid in the development of this as well.
2: Right. So I think the the concern here is multiple folded, right? I mean, we've got the issue of what the local environment is going to, how the local environment is going to respond to the constant churning of water. But if this generates any sound whatsoever, that's going to travel much further from the specific location. And that could have long lasting implications for marine life at a much greater distance from the source. And so that's potential. And if you start to scale this up and you put in multiple turbines and they're longer turbines, how does that additive effect sort of manifest downstream? And that could be potentially detrimental as well. So, so Steffi's point is absolutely right. I mean, the environmental impact is important to understand, um, but it's also important to understand it relative to the environmental impact that we already are undergoing based on the fossil fuel industry. And so having to choose between which environment to save or which environment to minimize the damage in is is an ethical question that's hard to answer. And I'm glad it's way above my pay grade. <laughs> Not your pay grade, Steffi.
1: Well, that's why scientists should work with other uh, subject matter experts, right? It shouldn't yeah, just be true. scientists doing this.
2: No, that's actually a really good point, Steffi, is yeah. that one of the biggest arguments that resonates with me And I am not a libertarian by any stretch, but libertarians actually have a very important contribution to make to the climate change discussion, and that is... You can't make decisions based on hard science alone. You have to make decisions about policy based on the combination of hard science and social science. How is this going to affect the people? How is this going to affect communities, yep. not just environment? And, and so your point is really well taken.
0: I don't have anything else productive to add to that. You've all made very excellent points.
1: I just wanted to see a video of this thing in operation. I know. It sounds wild yeah (laughs) (laughs) just like tethering it to the ocean floor
0: yeah could you imagine the upscaled version i can't my question is when they pound those uh tethered like whatever they're anchoring it with are they going to use the volcano hammerhead sharks
1: probably yes probably put lasers on them to like drill holes too Mm -hmm.
0: maybe that's how they kind of like keep other fish away from that area as they have those hammerhead sharks that are I, I'm assuming, and I'm saying it right here, indestructible, uh, they'll have them kind of be like a periphery force. Mm-hmm.
2: I ask for one simple thing here, people, and that's for sharks with freaking laser beams attached <laughs> to their heads.
0: Well, you know what? Energy production isn't the only problem we have. There are tons of plastic waste everywhere. And unless we want the future of our planet to resemble Disney's WALL-E, we're going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. And that answer may lie in the gut microbiome in the larval stage of the zoophobus morio beetle, which researchers have dubbed "superworms." That's right. We're talking about worms again. Sorry, Steffi. I gave you energy for the first story. Now we're going we're gonna to do worms. It's
1: okay. I can take it. I can handle this.
0: <laughs> Asterisk, not really worms.
1: it look like worms.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll get into it. Christian Rinke of the University of Queensland has reported that these larvae are capable of surviving on a diet of only polystyrene, which is hinting that something in their microbiome is capable of breaking down plastics. If we can figure out exactly what that is, it could help us get rid of all of this pesky plastic. So what do we think about superworms and the super microbiome that could help us with our plastic problem?
2: This actually reminded me a lot about the Dermestid beetles that we've kept in my lab for a long time. Dermestid beetles are flesh-eating beetles, so we use them to break down the soft tissue around skeletal systems so that we can look at cool skeletons of animals that we've used or that we've recovered in, in various different ways, totally ethically and legally, mind you. So what reminded me of it, though, is that one of the things that we always have to do is keep Styrofoam in the enclosure because that's they like to burrow into the into the styrofoam and lay their eggs, um, and so I've heard the crunching sound of beetle larvae going through styrofoam, polystyrene, and it's loud. It's crazy, but I worry about the animals here, right? I mean, I, I can sustain myself on a diet entirely made up of Twinkies, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be happy, and it doesn't mean that I'm going to be in a good mood, and it doesn't mean that yeah. I'm going to be able to, you know. Get out of my chair at the end of the day, you know, and and do something productive. Um, and so I worry about what it might look like if we are training entire colonies of animals to sustain themselves on a product as unnatural <laughs> as polystyrene.
0: Uh, the first couple of days of the L Twinkie diet would be OK, though, but at least really? the first couple hours, I don't the first know. couple hours. I'm not a huge Twinkie fan, so I'm assuming, like, the person who would sign up for this would be, though, and that's yeah. the eyes I'm viewing this through. Well,
2: would they? I mean, are these beetles self-selecting? I like to eat microplastics, <laughs> so please use my larvae. Nope. Right.
0: Well, uh, based on the, the like, results after they moved them off of their all-plastic diet, I would assume that they weren't self-selecting, because they... What we're not telling you, the article does, is they survived on an all-plastic diet. They did not thrive. Right. They actually did slightly better, slightly better than the beetles who were starved.
1: I'm surprised they were able to eat it.
0: That's amazing.
1: And digest it and to get something of some sort of nutrient out of it. I mean, that is fascinating Mm -hmm. that we have created garbage that we can't even break down, but worms can.
2: Right. And I think this is the important point of this conversation, and that is that the intention is not to unleash these colonies of larvae, right? It's instead to Mm -hmm. harness the enzymes that they're producing that break it down, that break down these plastics, Mm -hmm. to use that in a larger scale sort of operation. And so on the one hand, it's much more romantic maybe not for Steffi, to think about worms or larvae eating through all of our plastic in the ocean, right? I mean, back to the conversation we were just having about turbines inside the ocean, these turbines are being placed around the periphery of the giant Pacific trash island, plastic island. And so, and and mind you, that's not really observable from from satellite because we're not talking about big pieces of plastic. We're talking about tiny microplastics, that are just concentrated in this area. And so if you could find an enzyme to break that down, that is not detrimental to the rest of the ecosystem. That is a huge advancement, especially since, you know, when we think about how much of our recycling is actually recycled and it's so small.
0: Oh
1: gosh, it's like 7% of plastic. It's so tiny.
2: So small. And even of the ones that like the recycling centers will take, right? If they'll take number one plastics or number two plastics or number five, whatever it is, only ones that are in a particular shape that are going to then be resaleable, right, are mm-hmm. the ones that are actually recycled. Everything else is just then moved to the landfill um, and ultimately ends up in our oceans. And so um, having an enzyme that could break this down would be huge.
0: I, I think so. I, I, think, I think you've hit the nail right on the head. With a
2: hammerhead shark? with Yeah. Dang, I was oh, I'm over. so sorry, sorry James. Sorry. It's
0: oh. a, no, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. I set it up. You hit it out of the park. Somebody, somebody else has to score occasionally. That's right,
2: James Reed with the assist. That's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm the Wayne Gretzky of the Science Night Podcast. Wait, 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 wait. I am the you Wayne just... Gretzky here. No, yeah, you know, a lot of us. So I'm the Rangers Wayne Gretzky. Okay, okay. You can be the Oilers Wayne Gretzky. Right.
2: I'd like to be the Blues Wayne, Wayne Gretzky, just because like that was a really cool time. Did he, the, he did in the Blues did history. He the Blues. He did.
0: Huh.
1: Is this hockey? The and then know. there was baseball. Yeah, we're
2: talking about talking about hockey, oh.
0: which uses plastic face shields. Perfect. Bring it back. Uh, <laughs> I I I read this and I was thinking a lot of the cone snail article where we're kind of Now, very into, as a podcast, very into cone snails and the things that they can do for us. But I like the idea that we're seeing another thing that worms could do that doesn't necessarily require, or I should say, we're seeing another thing that an animal can do that doesn't necessarily require us to, like, throw a thousand of these animals onto a garbage patch and and have them just eat their way to zero garbage patch. But we can use something within them and then synthesize it, then do it. So we don't actually have to have a bunch of these superworms dying for service.
1: For our trash. I want to know the origin story of this study. Like, how did they discover yeah. that these worms were eating plastic? Like, that's
0: amazing. Maybe that's what we do. We do the Science Night follow-up and we send them a Twitter mention and hope for the best. It, it worked with Bayer Ramiro, I'm just saying.
1: Okay, there you go.
0: Worked with Lee Berger, too. Did work with Lee Berger. Mm-hmm. Just like Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't
2: take. Right, well done, well done. He was the greatest for a reason, you know. So I want to tell you something.
0: I love science. I made a whole podcast about how much I love it. What podcast is that? Yeah. History's B-Sides. Oh, okay. You should all go listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's why I love science. In 2014, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency launched the Hayabusa 2 mission with the goal of landing a probe on an asteroid, collecting material from its surface, shooting a capsule full of said material back to Earth, finding it in the Australian Outback, and then analyzing the material. And guess what? It all worked. It just all worked. And because of it, We now have the oldest rocks ever studied on Earth, teaching us more about how our solar system was formed. This reading up on, uh, you know, the popular reporting on the actual rocks was interesting, but like reading about the mission itself was crazy. The likelihood of this working is so small. And the fact that it worked on Japan's second attempt at this is insane. How many Apollos did it take us to get to the moon? Oh, gosh.
1: I I think the engineering that went into this is fascinating. It's amazing. And then they were able to bring back these meteorites that they're very unique because they didn't travel through the Earth's atmosphere and they weren't contaminated by our surface conditions. So they were pure essentially and we've never seen that before so that's amazing
2: yeah i think you're not giving credit where credit is due here i mean we did have two hollywood blockbusters that landed on asteroids that gave us the blueprint for how to do this Mm. right
0: and saved the world
2: i think
0: only bruce willis landed on an asteroid bruce willis and his crew i think deep deep impact well, you may be right. Uh, was just, it just blew it I up. Think that, I think it hit. I think it hit. No,
2: I think it just hit. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, so it clearly <laughs> That's wasn't... That's the
0: deep impact.
2: <laughs> fair. That's a fair point, actually. That's a fair point. Although, Bruce Willis's movie was called Armageddon, and that didn't come to fruition, so...
1: We should follow this up later on to see what they actually find in these meteorites that have never we've never had access to before. So it'll take yeah. time to analyze this. Yeah, we're in yeah. very
2: early on this on this story, as we do. And uh, we have much to learn still. It's just exciting that it's happened. Yeah, that's
0: true. I guess we should we should note that like the big thing that this article is reporting is that they got the rocks back and they were able to kind of like very briefly analyze and kind of see what they were. But now they're going, and they did it with like 2% of the sample. Mm-hmm. So they have lots left right. over. I think they're holding, at least the way I understood it, they're holding a fair amount of it on reserve so that as testing and sampling methods advance they can then relook at these rather than having to send hayabusa 3 up to this asteroid and hope it all works again so i guess if we see anything else you'll hear about it on the science night podcast Coming up next, we have my conversation with Cameron Martin, host of the Nature is Gay podcast, who is going to tell you all about biology beyond the binary after this message from another podcast that I think you will enjoy.
1: Nature, we're part of it. Animals, we're one of them. What can we learn from other species? How can our lives be better by reconnecting with nature? And why does it matter at all? That's what Wild Connection, the podcast, is all about. Every week, we bring you authors, filmmakers, scientists, and conservationists whose work is revealing why being connected to nature and wildlife matters. You can find us where you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We're hosted by Podbean, so you can find us there, too. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at Wild Connect Pod.
0: Welcome back to the Science Night podcast. We are talking to Cameron Martin, and I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit on what it is to be a podcaster this is right now the third time we're trying to do this interview because of something I like to call things going wrong. Um, and it's all on my end. I'm not saying that our dear guest, Cameron, is at fault. I'm sure it's me some point. And if it's not, it, it's, it's, it's me projecting onto you at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but our guest tonight is, host, is the host of the Nature is Gay podcast, Cameron Martin. Cameron, again, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Thank you for having me through all of these trials and
0: tribulations. Yeah, you know, by this point we're best friends. You know, we're we're <laughs> <laughs> we're we're starting a we're starting a how to not do good at recording podcast podcast. That's coming to the Wonderly app soon.
3: It would be very unhelpful because it's just going to be a lot of fumbling around like did that work? Did that
0: work? Maybe know, we do like a, Yeah, we do like a true crime podcast but figuring out how we can be bad at <laughs> recording audio.
3: That's how we will sort to of the top of the charts.
0: Yeah. Oh, that could be it. The first, like the first shitty audio prestige podcast. <laughs> that could be our niche right there. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, Cameron, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do?
3: So like you mentioned, I host a podcast called nature is gay, but in my real world, world job. I am a teaching assistant on a in a therapeutic farm school setting. So it's a really, really cool position that allows me to work with lots of different species. So I get to work with camels and llamas and alpacas. I also get to work with several birds of prey and sheep and horses and we just got a porcupine. Sometimes I work in the garden with the plants. Like I get a lot of exposure there and it's been a really,
0: really cool experience. Talk to me a little bit about what a therapeutic farm is, because uh, most of my time on a farm was the opposite of therapeutic as I was stacking hay bales up for extra money in the summer.
3: Well, we do a lot of stacking of hay bales, not necessarily with the, the students. So it's a, a program for either students can either be residential or day students, but they get recommended there from their school district. And it's for students who... Maybe like neurodiverse or have um, different diagnoses, but for whatever reason, they don't do well in like a traditional school setting. So then they get recommended to our facility and the therapeutic part comes in when they have a job that they might have to do on the farm or they are just feeling stressed that day and they can come hang out with one of the animals. They have classes in all of the areas, so they have horsemanship, uh, wildlife and the livestock farm science classes. And so I get to teach those classes if, if like one of the teachers is out and I get to assist with those classes. So it's just kind of a really nice like open environment. The kids do their social work sessions there sometimes. It's a really interesting thing that I really wish that I had when I was a kid, sure. the ability to just go visit a farm when I'm just feeling bummed out,
0: you know, Yeah, cool. I really do love that in certain instances, you know, the American education system still has some room for improvement, but there are... People and groups and areas that are trying new and interesting ways to get to people who just don't thrive in the traditional classroom setting. Um, you know, it seemed like when I was growing up in the nineties, the uh, best we had was try harder. What have you tried harder? Yeah. Um, Why don't
3: you yeah. just uh, focus or like try applying yourself?
0: Yeah, or sit in the corner. That was a fun one. When I, the, <laughs> yeah. I was in the
3: yeah, it's it's like. The things that I I did get out of of school, I know that a lot of my peers didn't, but now they've got different organizations. Like there's the Institute for Human Animal Interactions, and that's one that is really like promoting this positive animal human interaction aspect, especially Mm in you know schools, but in other ways too. There's a lot of those kind of organizations that are promoting this idea of, and there's research to back it up too. I remember reading that kids who have. ADHD, when they have interactions with animals, their focus is so improved and for a longer time than had they gotten physical activity. Uh-huh. Now, uh-huh. There's a lot of research to back it up and there are a lot of organizations who are trying to promote that that idea. So I don't know, hopefully we continue that into just the regular public school system because I think that everybody has a little bit to benefit out of
0: that. If, you know, we come away by showing that these kind of alternatives to standard classroom models are there and available and less kind of like stigmatized. I think that's a good thing too. I I don't have a good transition from your work (laughs) with kids and farm animals to your work as a podcaster. So we're going to do one of those really fun, jarring transitions. All right, Because you are a podcaster as well, just like me, except, you know, asterisks next to my my more recent podcasteries but you're the host of the nature is gay podcast and i absolutely love it i am a subscriber and all of you should do that as soon as this interview is over go over and click the follow subscribe whatever it is also rate and review and do it to us too but i love this podcast because you are kind of shining a light on the fact that there is Evidence of homosexuality mating patterns outside of the standard binary that humans kind of think is the natural order. Well, some humans think is the natural order. And you're just kind of highlighting that the natural order is the opposite. There are different ways to think about sexuality and mating habits in non-human species, and I think that's a really interesting take on this. So what brought you to decide you wanted to do this podcast? In addition to
3: the job that I do now, I have a background in doing wildlife research, and I've always really loved watching, you know, animal shows. I just saw something on Instagram about how it's been 20 years since Zabumafu ended. I used to love (laughs) Zabumafu. I met Martin Kratt one time, and it was like the highlight of my young life, and I always really looked up to these like science communicators like Steve Irwin and the Cra brothers and as in my role as like teaching assistant was recently doing some research for Pride Month into homosexuality in animals just thinking like maybe I could turn it into a lesson plan or turn it into a like bulletin board something along those lines and read this fact that 10% of all domesticated rams, exhibit exclusive homosexual behavior and it blew my mind i could not stop talking about it i could not stop sharing it with people i was like did you know that 10 percent of them are gay like exclusively gay and it's not to do with their the way they were raised it's not got to do with any controllable external factors it's just hardwired into them and it doesn't matter if there's a female who is in estrus and ready to go like they are going to just mate with other males and so I was like, well, I think this stuff is really interesting. I want to find some sort of an Instagram page or a, a podcast, something that covers a lot more of these topics because I want to learn more. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find that, that platform or that base, that community for discussing these things. And I just decided, well, I kind of have some science communication experience. I guess I'll be that person. And it just kind of started from there.
0: I absolutely love that story. It's now the third time I've heard it, but I love (laughs) it. I love it just as much this time because the way that you link the science communicators of your past and how important they were to you uh, and just deciding, you know, I can do this. No one is talking about this. I feel like somebody should talk about this. I'm going to go out and do it. I think more scientists or people involved with science or just have a background in science education should feel more comfortable in doing this. I'm not saying that everybody that wears a lab coat occasionally needs to get a podcast that would flood the market way too much. And I just can't handle that, uh, that hit to my analytics. But I feel like if you see a niche that you think needs to be filled You should all feel comfortable in doing that, and I'm so happy you're doing that because I have learned a lot from listening to this podcast. And you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna break down every episode. Uh, Maybe that can be like the second podcast you start is breaking further down each episode, like a like a director's cut or something. But what are the I don't want to say strange things because I don't want to make any of this seem like it's strange. What are some of the more interesting things that you learned about from this series and in researching these series?
3: I think for me, so I kind of try to avoid anthropomorphizing anything that I'm talking about, but it's, it's hard because I am kind of viewing it through this lens of, you know, there's no binary and like human sex and sexuality, and there's no binary in the natural world, sex and sexuality. There's no really difference there. But sometimes it's, it's kind of unavoidable to anthropomorphize. Anyway, one of the things that I uncovered in the episode about stump-tailed macaques is that not only was it really interesting to read these papers about the very, very specific mating patterns of stump-tailed macaques, like what their Sex positions looked like how long their sexual acts lasted, um, how many thrusts there were during their sexual acts. But between male stump tailed macaques, when two males mate and then they finish copulating, they will eat the semen of the macaque that's on top. Essentially, it felt so human, it was mm-hmm. weird to read that. I was like, that's something that because it has no reproductive reasoning. I can't imagine any kind of like sociosexual reasoning behind that. Perhaps it's because, well, there's nutrition in it. We don't want to waste it, but it just felt so human. It was so interesting to read that. And then the most recent one at this point, the hyena episode, that hyenas have a pseudo-penis, which... They won't know this, but you and I talked about what is the plural of penis and I looked it up and it's penis.. Oh, penises. that's,
0: that's fun. Yeah, that's, that's, that's more whimsical than I was expecting. Peonies.
3: But yeah, so, so female hyenas have a pseudo penis that in appearance is very difficult to differentiate from the male's erect penis for a very long time. Observers thought that they were hermaphrodites because they just couldn't tell the difference between the two. But because of this pseudopenis, it has a lot of important functions, but it also is very detrimental to their survival as a species. Because the females, the, the rate of birth when they, they're giving their first birth, I think it's as high as like 15%. Uh-huh. And then I want to say like 60% of firstborn cubs die. So 15% of mothers die in their first birth and then 60% of firstborn cubs die, which is insane that this has evolved and it is still working for them, but it does come with these pretty steep consequences for them.
0: Yeah. You know, I, in listening to that, I was really trying to put my experimental biology cap on and think about what benefit was that selected for or was it just outside of the evolutionary factors and it just happened to evolve with whatever suite of things that that um were beneficial you know what i mean like cuz hyenas are pretty bulletproof when it comes to a lot of things. They can kind of eat anything. They're good hunters. They can move around really well. They have a social structure, so there's kind of like that benefit of having numbers, but that it just seems like the thing that creates new hyenas is really difficult. You talked about like the training sessions that males have to go through before they can even kind of figure out how to to mate. With right, yeah. with a female. And it's just really interesting. Like, why why did that evolve? I'm not asking you. I'm I'm unless you have an answer.
3: Uh, I, I don't. I mean, yeah. that's one thing about evolution is it doesn't have to have a, a reasoning. You know, that's right. something I'm always having to remind myself. Just because it evolved this way doesn't mean that it has to have evolved for a specific reason. It just wasn't detrimental, so it didn't breed out of the population. I mean, the the pseudopenis does serve as kind of a communication sign for when they're greeting each other mm-hmm. and erect like penis or pseudo penis, is a sign of deference or submission so if you're like submitting to the the dominant female or if you are fighting with another hyena and you are ready to submit and be done with the fight then you can have an, an erection but aside from those reasonings i i don't know what other function it would serve and I don't think that scientists really understand the evolutionary history of it, or where or why this could have evolved. I I don't remember reading anything about that in
0: my research,
3: so it's kind of a mystery.
0: And it's really interesting that you're shedding lights on uh, shedding any light on hyenas, because I think you know you cover in the the episode too. Uh, this is now just becoming the director's cut of the <laughs> Spotted Hyena podcast. Um, <laughs> but you point out like they're really what they're really misunderstood. They're filiform, so they're more closely related to cats than dogs, but everyone just kind of assumes they're dogs. Whenever there's anthropomorphized savanna animals, they're always the bad guy. You're never going to see the good guy hyena unless Disney's really changed up the Lion King extended universe, <laughs> uh, and I haven't checked in since Lion King 2. And there is like the uh cultural kind of stigmatization with Groups in that area, a large area uh, of Africa, where they're just not always the good guys. So it's it's really interesting that we're learning all these things about hyenas. Because I think maybe that's one of the reasons that they're not well studied. Is just It's like, oh, they're hyenas. They're everywhere. Why would we study these things? I don't maybe, know. maybe that's
3: my next project. I did go to two years of film school. So maybe the next thing oh. is a movie where the hyena is the...
0: Yeah. The protagonist. I think you just do a rip-off version of the Lion King, but yeah, have it be hyenas.
3: Exactly. Reverse the roles, and really the lion is the bad guy. Yeah. They steal all the hyenas' food.
0: They did. They did steal all the hyenas' food. Are they t- I That was crazy when I learned that, too. Because, I, you know, you always learn about like, the lioness is actually the good hunter. But then it's like, yeah, but they're also just not that good great at hunting. They they just kind of hang out with hyenas. See the the Animal Planet documentaries made me think it was the opposite that the hyena is going to swoop in and steal the food. Right,
3: yeah. But I I think it was like 35% of the time it's the oh no, I can't remember the statistic. It's been too long.
0: <laughs> yeah. Never mind. <laughs> it was a significant amount of time yeah. where the hyena is actually the hunter. Hunter and the lion is
3: just kind of opportunistically Sharing the meal with the hyena.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and actually, let's, let's use this as a springboard to talk about the ways that you're also kind of de-anthropomorphizing some of the Disney movies, too. Because I'm not trying to say that you are picking on Disney every time you do one of your podcast episodes. But two of the eight released podcasts do talk about how Disney kind of got things wrong a little bit. So let's talk about Clownfish for a second. And about hermaphrodism in clownfish and why finding Nemo should have been very different.
3: Yeah, I will. I mean, I will pick on Disney whenever given an
0: opportunity. So
3: maybe now that you've pointed that out, that might just be some subconscious bias.
0: (laughs) Just steer into it. Make it a conscious bias now.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So clownfish are hermaphroditic, all all species of clownfish. So they don't all look like the ones you see in pet stores, the, the black and white and orange ones. But all species are hermaphroditic. And that means that essentially they have a social hierarchy where there is a top male and female who are the largest in the group. And then underneath are all males. So all clownfish are born male. And when the dominant female dies, the dominant male will change sexes and become the most dominant female. And the other clownfish will move up in the hierarchy. And that's because it's a lot more energy intensive to, to produce eggs than it is to produce sperm. So having a very large fecund female makes a lot of sense because she can produce all the eggs and then the smaller males don't have to expend a lot of energy to fertilize them creating sperm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you think about finding Nemo, that means that when in the beginning of the, vi- of the movie, Nemo's mom, Coral, dies, then Marlin, his dad, Unless there's some other clownfish in their group that we don't know about, Marlin would have become the female of the group, and Nemo would have moved up in the hierarchy and become Marlin's mate. I'm not like ragging on Disney for not yeah. including that in the movie for obvious reasons,
0: but it's very it's different just, story.
3: It's an int- yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it. It's an interesting take on that that dynamic. It would make it interesting.
0: Yeah, maybe they'll get that in the ep- in like three. In the third one. There's two now, right? Maybe they'll do that. In fi- Maybe that'll be finding Nemo 3.
3: Yeah, where uh, Nemo becomes the the female of the group.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when Marlin dies and he's like, well... Uh, <laughs> also, there's no other clownfish in that universe. So no. this is just an evolutionary dead end all over the place. Exactly. He
3: would just be a lonely little clownfish wandering around.
0: Yeah, but with a lot of heart. Yes. And one small... A lot small of spunk. <laughs> yes, yeah. and one small thing. <laughs> oh, man. Wonderful stuff. So I also want to talk about what are some of the the below-the-surface goals you have for this podcast, rather than just being a podcast that shows off really cool stuff. What are some of the things that you're trying to communicate as like the larger takeaway points with this podcast?
3: I guess in my mind, first off, I'm really bad at setting goals. But I think what I'm kind of imagining is to have a space where people who are interested in these topics but also people within like the LGBTQ community can come together and discuss these things without any sort of judgment and just normalize it and discuss these ideas and share them because that is really the heart of why I started this podcast is that these things that really really interest me I love sharing them with people and when people enjoy them I I get so much out of that and that sharing of information and that's kind of what I want to build is this community and this community feeling of being able to talk about these
0: things. I really do think that is great. And you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't learn about in biology is like a lot of stuff, at least in high school Is a lot of the stuff that has to do with biology, which is sex and death, because we get a little squeamish when we talk about those things. But that is all of evolution.
3: I think, too, a lot of these topics are very complex, and people tend to shy away from complex issues, especially when they relate to sex. With the episode that is coming out today, it will be out when this episode is published, but it's about plants, and it's about tomatoes. And I remember learning about plants in college and it was very straightforward and very simplistic. Mm -hmm. And once I started digging into it, it is complex. Sex determination in plants is, there is a lot of information out there and there are so many different ways and types and reasons and hows and whys. And it's, I mean, that's part of it too, is that These are complex issues that people just don't want to touch, and I don't want to shy away from that.
0: I would love to yes and you like I did with the clownfish and the hyenas, but I I know that I grow plants, and (laughs) and I think I got the same series of like two to three lectures about plants when I was taking my last biology class too. We acknowledged that they existed and that they had chlorophyll instead of mitochondria. And sell walls. And now I'm getting towards the end of what I know about plant biology. So I am super excited to listen to this podcast. I know what I'll be doing tomorrow.
3: Yeah, it's like the one complex thing you learn is, oh, well, not all berries are berries. And that's kind of the
0: end. <laughs> Again, after this podcast is over, go learn about sex and tomatoes. There, I give you a free title. You can, you can just take that one. I think what I really love is you talked about building a community. And I could see... Somebody who is really questioning everything about themselves, especially young people who just don't have a lot of resources if they're questioning their sexuality, if they're questioning their gender identity, um, you know, anything along that journey. Just having any point of contact to kind of show you that. This is the natural state. The thing that you are experiencing is the natural state in all of these species and humanity is included with that. We as a species like to put ourselves above everything. We like to think of ourselves as the apex of all evolution rather than a portion of it. I love that your podcast is breaking down some of those walls.
3: Yeah, I definitely think that Like I said, I don't want to shy too much away from anthropomorphizing the things that we talk about because I don't want to remove us from nature, Mm -hmm. right? I, I want that to get in there and be sticky and like complicated because we are part of it. And if you are questioning who you are or trying to figure out who you are, what you want to be like you are nature experiencing itself. Mm -hmm. You know, you are part of this story and there is no normal and there is no like black and white. Like there's no binary. That's why, you know, I say the podcast goes beyond the binary because the binary doesn't exist.
0: Instead of anthropomorphizing nature, we are putting nature and the natural cycles back into humanity. Um, And I think if you can achieve that goal, man, will we be better off because of it. The last thing I'm going to ask you for the third time is how can we follow you? How can we keep up with the things that you're doing?
3: So the podcast is on most major podcasting platforms. So you can find it on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, um, Pocket Casts. But we are also on Instagram at Nature is Gay Pod. And right now, that's all the social media that we have.
0: It is a great show. Go out and listen to it. You're at the end of this episode, so you might as well just go right over to Nature is Gay, follow, rate it, review it, and listen to a bunch of episodes. Thank you so much, Cameron, for all the times that you've talked to me. We've now made it to the end of this podcast.
3: It's been fun every time. Thank you for having me.
0: Great. I don't think there's going to be a fourth one if I forget to save now. So I'm going to click save and we're going to send you back to me. Thank you so much to Cameron for putting up with all the technical issues so that we could do this interview. It was challenging, to say the least. Be sure to subscribe to the Nature is Gay podcast and follow them on all of their social media. Well, you have come again to the end of another episode of the Science Night Podcast. But we have lots more coming your way all summer. So be sure to follow us on social media. And if you want to follow me, I am at James underscore read three. I'm going to be honest, it's a lot of real bad Phillies tweets right now, but we can all get through this summer of my discontent together. Steffi, where can everybody follow you?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Steffi Deem and Instagram at Starshipin.
0: Jason, where can people find what you're talking
2: about? You can find me on Twitter at JM. I promise not to tweet about the Royals anymore this summer. I mean, I just read <laughs> yesterday that if the Royals, who are the worst team in baseball, scored exactly five runs in every single one of their games, they would still be the fifteenth worst team in baseball. So, I'm gonna stop talking about them for the best. Baseball's a disease, folks. I'm just telling you right now.
0: I'm just
1: gonna talk about dogs and traveling. Follow Steffi. And science. Sorry, not not no baseball.
0: We'll, we'll retweet Steffi.
1: <laughs> Maybe the sausage race from the Brewers And game. Steffi
0: cakes. What about Steffi cakes? And you Steffi should talk cakes. more about them. Yeah. So follow Steffi to find out what that's all about. Yeah, send them to me. You can follow the podcast at ScienceNight1 and be sure to visit our home on the web at SciNight.com for links to all our other social media, past episodes, links to the stories that we talk about, and, of course, our merch, including our sticker packs. Everything you need to support the show is in one convenient location, and it's at SciNight.com. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. And until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. We're just going to start it again.
1: All right. They just have to deal with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah.